Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. 2 Kings chapter 13. Elisha had become sick with illness of which he would die, and then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face. and said, O Father, my Father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. The book of Kings has been tracing the godly and ungodly kings of both Israel and Judah. And I really, there's a group of people in Babylon at the time taking these different records from all these different kingships. And what they've been showing to some degree is that when the kings keep the covenant, God treats them exactly as he said he would treat them. And when they don't keep the covenant, God treats them exactly as he said he would treat them. And really, they're doing a historical survey with the book of Kings to realize that God actually kept his promises through generations of people. And it's been fairly consistent. God measures out the blessings for the faithful and he measures out troubles for those that are unfaithful or those that deny him. So we start tonight with a, an inserted story about Elisha because the other major theme of Kings is that while these kings have fallen away from the kingdom of God, they've not done what God asked them to do, God just, he doesn't abandon the people, he raises up prophets. So you have the time of the patriarchs, you have the Mosaic Covenant, which leads right into a period of judges, and judges kind of serve as a someone who's heard directly from God and then they lead, so kind of a prophet king. And then with the era of kings, the people wanted a king like all the other nations around them, and God said, you don't need one. They said, well, we still want one. So he says, you can have kings, but here's the contract with kings. I'm going to still send my word through these prophets. So these prophets start rising up as kings aren't keeping the word or the commitment that they made when they were anointed. And so David, being the greatest of these kings, he actually spoke with God and prayed with God, and we have the Psalms as evidence of it. Uh, David was a kind of prophet king. So the throne of David, or the sons of David, they're looking for that prophet king that can take that position again. They're not going to see that person until Jesus. But so as we go through kings, the recorders are bringing together these prophets and highlighting their stories because they are the means by which God talks to the nation. So it's, very, it's a little different than the book of Chronicles and what they're trying to accomplish. They're really looking for evidence that God has, is still in love with Israel and that they're still his people, that he has sustained his promises. And so the book of Kings makes that point. So when we start with Elijah being sick, we're flipping over to the prophets. Uh, it's been about 55 years of being a, a prophet for the nation, the northern kingdom Israel for Elisha. He has faithfully carried out his duties now with four different kings. And so as he passes away, that's the end of an era for Israel. And I think we see Joash here. We see the good side of Joash in the sense that he's actually paying an homage to the prophet as the strength of the nation. Look at how he says this. <clears throat> oh, father, my father, frankly, is a passage, a, a sign of respect, of honor. Elisha is clearly older biologically, but for a king to say that to a prophet is pretty unique to, uh, to uh, the tradition of the Jews. And Joash is, you know, 
summarized as having started off really well, but then falling away from the worship of the Lord and, 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 and doing things his own way. So when he comes in and at least pays regard to Elisha, we can see that the reputation of Elisha is significantly better with Joash than Elijah was with Ahab because he's running for his life from Ahab. So the northern kingdom has come back to a place where at least the prophets aren't being sought out for death. Um, there's another piece to this when he says the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. The idea that Elisha's death bemoans the strength of Israel is one way to say, because Elisha's always given God the glory, that God's the strength of Israel. God's the strength that he looks for. So when it says the chariots of Israel and their horsemen, how is Israel going to survive with this great prophet falling, falling into death? So another angle of this, and I think this is important, is the, O Father, my Father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen, is the exact same thing that Elisha said when Elijah was being taken up by chariots of fire. So maybe in this sense, Joash is, first of all, honoring Elisha, giving him some, some due to the prophet as a representative of God, um, but also, you know, saying something similar to what Elisha said, maybe a reminder of that time when Elisha first took up the mantle as kind of the head of the prophets. And so thoughtful, it shows that Joash knows the story back in 2 Kings 2.12. It shows that he understands the spiritual strength of Israel. So this is really, Joash is aware enough that the loss of Israel, Elisha is a spiritual loss to the nation. And by reflecting back on that time, he's showing a great kindness when he does it. And Elisha says to him in verse 15, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, put, a, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it, and Elisha put his hands on the king's hands, and he said, open the east window, and he opened it. And Elijah said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you've destroyed them. A lot going on here. Um, let's point out first how deliberate Elisha is with his instructions. One thing at a time. So get a bow, he grabs a bow. Open the window, he opens a window. Pull it back, he pulls it back. Shoot, he shot. So the idea that Joash doesn't have to do much or he doesn't have to take huge steps of faith here. Elisha's walking him through an image of deliverance of Syria. And in verse uh, 17, he very much clarifies what he's doing here. These arrows aren't just arrows being shot out a window. These are arrows that represent the deliverance God's going to give, which is important because Joash is going to screw this up. In the same way that Joash, Joash is dispassionate about his worship of Yahweh to the point where that's the summary of his life is that he continued in the sins of Jeroboam, he's also dispassionate about this blessing that Elijah's trying to give. So the arrows are an image of deliverance. And when he puts his hand on there and points it out the east window, he talks about Aphek, which is what they're looking at when they look out the east window. Aphek is east of Galilee, a key strategic city to control the region. So the prophetic interpretation is given clearly here. Notice that Elisha is giving Joash everything one step at a time, so there shouldn't be any confusion as to what happens next. Verse 18, then he said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck the ground three times and stopped. 
And the man of God was angry with them and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. You know, seven would have been perfect, divine perfection. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it, but now you'll strike Syria only three times. So Syria is going to get subdued. You're going to push them back. There'll be some relief for Israel here. But Joash is going to get his victories based on the degree to which he takes the word of God through the prophet seriously. And he kind of lackluster, you know, bang it three times. That's not necessarily going all out, you know. There's a whole quiver of arrows there, and, you know, he's just kind of doing it halfway. So I like the idea. We were up in Alexandria, and Pastor Jay from Church of the Pines was there, and he said, you know, whatever God's given for you to do, like shoot arrows, maybe you should give, give the best to God and give the world the rest. So whatever he's called you to do, give it, give it your best. And everything else takes second fiddle to that, right? So here Joash isn't giving his best. He's, he's following the steps, but he's not doing it necessarily with the intent or trust or faith that the, it has the meaning that it has. And this is actually pretty common. We all know what God's asked us to do. Most of us at some point in our life really have to struggle with if we're going to do it with our whole heart or not. So when God says to serve people, Mark chapter 10, are we going to do it with our whole heart or not? And so it's not an issue of knowing or not knowing what God's asked from us in our life. Look around. There's people that need to be blessed. Bless them. That's what he's asked us to do. And I'm, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but Joash has it completely oversimplified. Shoot arrows. Hit the ground. And so he's angry at him because of his mediocre faith. And it's his mediocre faith that's caused these problems in the first place first place it's lukewarm faith you know in, in, in the new testament we see that lukewarm christians are spat out god's not interested in people that are halfway there you wouldn't want to be in a romance with somebody who kind of kind of likes you you want to be in a romance with somebody who adores you that's the kind of love and romance that's that's wanted the kind of relationship god wants from his people so when Jesus saw that this is happening, he gets angry with his disciples and he says, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. The kingdom of God belongs to those that are like these children. Have you ever seen children do things halfway? Half-hearted? Only chores, I suppose. But when it comes to things that are joyful, relationships, kids can't wait to run and give a hug. They can't wait to jump into those things. Healthy kids are absolutely abundant with energy to do things. So it angers Jesus. And I think I, I point out the anger from Jesus too to note that being angry isn't a sin if it's angry at the things that anger God. So being halfway and having that kind of peace there, you know, clearly Elisha doesn't go to bed on his anger. He tells Joash, man, what are you doing? Why'd you do that? He just speaks it. He doesn't bottle it up. No passive aggressiveness here. He just tells him. Joash's leadership here is going to affect not just Joash, but all of Israel. People are going to hurt because their king isn't passionate about his Lord. And I think that's true in any leadership position. If you're in a leadership position and you're doing it halfway, people get hurt by that. And, 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 and it does damage in those senses. How bad do you want to beat the enemy, Joash? If you look at sin in our own life, how bad do you want to beat that sin? Yes, it's a problem. Yes, it's a plague of oppression on the nation of Israel. How bad do you want to beat those Syrians? Well, God's asking you to do this thing right here that's an image of deliverance. You should be doing it with everything you got. If he was a smart king, he would have hit the floor until he couldn't hit the floor anymore. 
or until Elijah stopped him. Okay, that's enough. You got it. Sin is relentless. It never stops. Are we relentless in beating it? Or do we let up when things get easier for us or when we feel like we can, you know, not worry about it so much? Sin's relentless. We should be relentless. So there's a neat image here. Elijah's upset because the guy that's responsible for God's people is passive about it. So Joash was shown that it mattered. He was then given the freedom to act of his own heart and his actions get measured out. That's it. That's the lesson, right? And we have these things here for our own lessons. And then verse 20 moves on. Then Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. And so it was when they were burying a man, some other guy, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elijah. When the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Remember, graves in the Middle East are often kind of covered caves. So it's not like they got out shovels and dug up a grave in the ground for this. They would have just rolled the rock away and tried to put the body in there for the time being and then come back and do the proper funeral. But in doing that, some of those caves were pretty small. Uh, the body touched the other body. So all of this... Um, is a curious little story to throw in in the middle of the book of Kings, right? But we have this thing. So one more miracle happens with Elijah even after he's properly buried and in a cave. This is a guy, Elisha. He's given his entire life to serve the Lord. First Kings 19, he gave everything and walked away to become Elijah's uh, number two. He refused to leave Elijah in 2 Kings 10 when Elijah said, you don't have to come with me. So he's taken over the sons of the prophet, these schools that were starting in all these towns that Elijah visited before he died. So he's teaching and studying the Torah. You've got the, the kings of Israel going off the map and even doing some idol worship. But then you got this remnant of faithful people in northern Israel called the sons of the prophets. And they're going to study the word, teach the Torah, and sure enough, God starts to speak through them. He's seen persecution, but he's also watched this transition from an era of kings persecuting the prophets to now regarding and respecting the prophets. That's a pretty successful life ministry. So here he is in his being born there and there's a relevance to this story. Not only that someone rose from the dead and they want to make a record of that, um, that that has happened, um, but we're moving from an era where prior to this time, Elisha, we usually referred to the law or the, you know, the, the, the law of the Lord. The, the word that's in Deuteronomy numbers, the Torah. From here forward, we're going to more often refer to it as the law and the prophets because there's a realization amongst Israel that God is still speaking to their country. It didn't end with the Torah and that what the prophets are saying needed to be recorded and written down. So we, don't, we have an Old Testament that's more than five books for a reason. And Elijah is a big part of that reason. The reliability of what he said coming from the Lord um, and the way in which the Lord did miracles through Elijah or using Elijah is something that the nation came to acknowledge. And in this case, Elisha has nothing to do with it. God's still using his dead corpse to do a miracle. So there can be no doubt here that Elisha is somebody that the Lord was speaking to and working through. Now, before Elijah died, Elisha asked for a double portion. And I think this is important. This is part of why this story is here. It's a request based on Deuteronomy 21, verse 17 
But he shall acknowledge the son of the unlived wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he's the beginning of his strength and the right of his firstborn is his. Elijah was asking Elijah to be the firstborn. And he wanted the double, he wanted the responsibility to take up Elijah's ministry and move forward with it. Now, Elijah had some miracles. Elisha mirrored almost every one of those miracles and even expanded on most of them. And so it's obvious to see that Elisha does more miracles than Elijah, but just out of curiosity, how many more? So if you look at the Midrash, Jewish tradition, they look at the miracles and they notice that Elijah does eight miracles and um, Elisha does 16 miracles. They're not including prophecies, which I thought was interesting. So go back through Elijah and you can kind of flip through and see the different events that happened, miracles. But you can also see times when he gave a prophecy that came true. And so when you look at those prophecies coming true, did Elisha get a double portion of those too? And this is interesting. First Kings 17.1, Elijah stops the rain. He has the ravens come. There's the oil. There's the widow's son. If you go to chapter 18, there's the fire. But I would also count the rain. Those are two different miracles. Now we're up to six miracles. Chapter 21, he prophesied about Ahab, Jezebel, and in 2 Kings 1, Ahaziah. That's three prophecies. So now we're up to nine. 2 Kings 1, he had the fire on the 50 soldiers. That's 10, but he also had a fire on the next set of soldiers. So that's another one, 11. And then there's the parting of the Jordan as he's going off to die. Prophecy that he gave to Elisha. And then he's raptured. So by my count, uh, that's a total of 12 miracles. And so when you look at that, that number adding up, and the, the rapture was something that Elisha saw. It wasn't something that would really was done, so to speak. So you got 12 miracles and prophecies associated with Elijah. Then you get to Elisha, chapter 2 of this book. He's parting the waters on the way back. He purifies the, the, the waters, and then he sends the bears out. And if you count the bears as one miracle, that's three. Chapter three, we get the water. Um, again, we get Moabite seeing things, uh, another one. And then you get the chapter four, you get the oil, the prophecy of the woman having a son, then raising the son from the dead, fixing the death in the pot by healing the soup and multiplying the bread. Chapter 5, he heals a leper. He knows about Genzali, but then he Gehazi and his manipulations, but then he curses Gehazi and Gehazi gets the leprosy. Chapter 6, prophecies of Syria. Chapter 7, you got famine, you got the, the story of the noblemen, and you got the Syrians hearing things. So the Moabites see things and the Syrians hear things. Two different miracles. Chapter 8, you got the prophecy of the famine, Ben-Hadad's death. Hazael's cruelty, cruelty, and then chapter 9, you got the, the prophecy of Jesus' cruelty, and you got the prophecy that we just read about of the victory at Aphek, and a prophecy of the three victories that would come out. So you add all that up, you got 12 miracles and prophecies from Elijah, and you've only got 23 miracles and prophecies from Elisha. So we're exactly one short of double portion and I don't, frankly, I don't think God need to even do this. Like I could assume double portion was, you know, a figure of speech. So it doesn't matter to me if these add up perfectly or if they don't, if the midrash is right or if my count is right. 
What I think is interesting is that no matter how you count it up, God, it's almost like he wants to show us that he'll keep his word to the letter, that he doesn't miss a beat. And in that, we can have complete faith in his word because we've seen that he keeps his word and we trust that he'll keep his word moving forward. So the idea that there would be uh, 12 Elijah and 24 Elisha is something I just think it, it doesn't, if, if you're that particular about things, then that just doesn't do it. So the writer notes that there's one more miracle here that happened after Elisha died. One more recorded miracle that's going to go in this book. And that one more miracle of the, the body touching the, the bones or the, the bones of Elisha, well, that makes it 24. And so it, it perfects the thing. And here's the thing. The touching of the bones and the raising of the dead here, if, as we've looked at Elijah, I've made a lot of comparisons to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus does every miracle that Elijah does, but adds to it, just exponentially adds to it. He doesn't feed just 100 people, he feed, feeds thousands of people. So the, the degree to which Jesus is, does everything bigger and better than Elisha is kind of interesting. The miracle confirms that God's working through the person, and if that's the case, God was not only working through Jesus, God was Jesus, right? So he, this person revives and gets on his feet. Uh, we can assume that's the dead man from the context of the story, but the pronoun use here isn't 100% clear. The way you could read this passage, and it's Elisha that stands and gets on his feet because it doesn't particularly say who he is. Well, that's interesting because we've seen in prophecy that there are times where that wording is very specific. So if you're looking at Elijah as a mirror of Jesus, we can assume that, that the he in that sentence might also apply to the one that God is working through. And as is the case with Jesus, you don't just go up and touch Jesus' body and then you're raised from that. There's no body to touch because Jesus himself revived and stood on his feet. There was no body in the tomb. That's the whole point. So this is a perfect fulfillment of double portion for Elijah where this is the final miracle, miracle that makes the divine promises of God all complete. You can say the same thing of Jesus. It's the resurrection and the new life from that resurrection that completes the divine purpose of Jesus Christ perfectly. So again, there's not much in the New Testament that doesn't get mirrored in the Old Testament. And, and this is another one of those situations. And then we're kind of back to the record of the kings. Like the writers just made sure that we had those stories. So verse 22, And Hazael king of Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Doesn't mean he won't ever destroy them. It just means not yet. There's a little bit more mercy for God to give. So the, the author, I think, puts this commentary in, verse 22-23, because it's interesting what a long reign this king has and the mercy and peace that northern Israel gets. They're going to get a season of prosperity and kind of peace here. Um, and the writers pointing out they're not getting that peace because of the behavior of the kings, but because of the mercy of God. Verse 23 makes it very clear why the Lord gives them this. So that graciousness that in verse 23, the grace that allows the continued existence of northern Israel is because God keeps his promises. And he said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Genesis 12, 26, 28, he said that he would build a nation with them. He said that he, they would they would affect and bless the entire earth. 
another piece of those prophecies, according to Romans, Paul points this out, Messiah was part of those prophecies too, that a Savior would come from that nation. So the idea of God keeping his promises and being graceful and delaying the judgment is exactly, I'm like, we're living on borrowed time right now. I don't believe this world honors Jesus Christ. I, do you? We're living on borrowed time just like northern Israel was living on borrowed time. And the judgment of God can come at any time. It says we won't know the day or the hour that Jesus is coming back, but we'll know when it happens because he'll come back in power and in might. Verse 24, now Hazael, king of Syria, died, and then Ben-Adad, we've had three of those now. Um, his son reigned in his place, and Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, recaptured the hand from, of Ben-Adad from the son of Hazael, the cities he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. Three times. That's the amount of times he hit the ground. So, the writer's pointing out this is exactly as Elisha prophesied, um, and it, com it turns out to be exactly as God said it would. Amaziah then takes over, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 1. In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, uh, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem. Notice that we start to get the mother's name. Ever since Jezebel, like they start adding in the mothers of these kings. And part of that is they're taking over fairly young. And it, and it seems that generationally or traditionally, the mother of that young king has a very strong influence on the king. And so they're being noted because that is part of the administration for these nations. Verse 3, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, Yet not like his father David, he did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Any given day, a king of Israel could say, those things are gone. But they don't do it because they don't want to get politically, they don't want to hurt their reputation with the people. It's because the people want those places. That said, it's held, verse 4, it's held against the king that he doesn't get rid of those things, even though it would make him unpopular. Uh, and, and again, we just see this again and again and again, this story of limited loyalty, halfway commitment. At least they're not doing ball worship in the northern kingdom, but the sin of Je Jeroboam, leaving the high places, doing kind of a halfway Christianity, that's not a good thing. And th they're not being blessed because of it. They're naming their people, at least in name, they're good. Amaziah means mighty is Jehovah. Jehoadin, the mom, means Jehovah delights. So the naming is good, but the lifestyle isn't there. They didn't take it away. These pockets of idolatry leaving this corrupt aspect of sin in the kingdom, and they just don't go get rid of it. And again, these accounts are here, and they get tedious. Here's another king that failed. Here's another king that failed. It just keeps coming, but there's a spiritual principle here. And these things are here for our instruction. It is common for people to accept Jesus in name and not follow him in their life. It's so common that we get an entire book of Kings to teach this lesson. It should get tedious. It should get frustrating. We should be so frustrated with these Kings not doing what God asked that eventually we turn and look in the mirror and say, are we doing what God asked? Are we still doodling around with things? Are we doing battle with sin? Or are we still leaving the high places and not taking them away? 
where sacrifices, part pieces of our time, pieces of our energy and resources are going to those things that just don't matter to the kingdom. Because there's still a little piece of us that isn't wanting to lose face with other people by getting rid of those things. So he had a loyal heart. He had a he had a loyal heart in the sense that he was a decent king for the people, but not in the sense that David had where he had a disposition towards God. He's double-minded. James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in his, all his ways, and that's kind of the curse of these kings, just one after the other. Anybody can choose to be single-minded. Any day we can wake up and say, okay, today's the day the high places are gone, yet it gets kicked down the road over and over again, swept under the rug. These kings are making a mistake and they're hurting their nation. They're hurting the life of Israel. And people that dabble with sin in their life, they're making the same mistake. They're leaving something around that's going to have a corrupting influence and it's eventually going to, you're going to pay the price for those things. So this is why you get up in the morning and say, Lord, King of the universe, seek out my heart, get rid of any wicked way in me. And if I need to get rid of something in my life, convict me of it, show me of it. And, and let's do business today and get that done. So verse 5, we'll keep going. Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered the, his father, the king. This is, by the way, good. Uh, 2 Kings 12.20, they conspired to kill Joash. That makes them murderers. Genesis 9, the consequence for murderers is execution. You're not supposed to leave them in your community. But the children, and this is another good thing, verse 6, but the children of the murderers he did not execute. Notice it doesn't say murder, it says execute. According to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. Everybody's accountable for themselves. This is unique to Jewish people, especially of this era. It was common that if you had rebels, you didn't just kill them, you killed their kids. And it was safer to do that. You didn't want the kids to grow up and seek vengeance. So you'd wipe out, and we've seen this, just entire families getting wiped out. Deuteronomy 4 says, though, that Jewish people shouldn't do that. So this is good in that this new king is actually doing what the scriptures say he should do. So that's a, that's a good start. This is a good thing. Here's another piece, too, and this is, one of those critiques of prophecy is often that they wrote the book after the events happened. This is one of those internal reliability pieces. There are prophecies in Deuteronomy that are fulfilled after this time in Kings. But notice here that they're quoting Deuteronomy perfectly. That dates Deuteronomy as being written before the book of Kings. Well, that's interesting. God sets up his scriptures in such, such a way that there's internal evidence that dates Deuteronomy with other books in the Bible. And in doing that, adds a ton of validity to the idea of prophecy. Uh, that dating is a, a common way to discredit the Bible. Um, and, and the Bible, with a good, obvious, simple reading of it, we see passages like this where the author assumes that the law of Moses has already been written. Because it has. That's the only reason to write it that way. And then the quotation in verse 6 is identical to Deuteronomy. So clearly they have the texts of Deuteronomy in front of them. Clearly the king of Israel has written that out for themselves before they took over. And they have a copy of it for themselves. And this king is, at least at the start, following what it says to do. Not put kids to death for their children. 
Verse 7, he killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by war and called its name Jokthiel to this day. So just another accomplishment to this king. Uh, this is good. He's pushing back the enemies of, of God and enemies of the kingdom. Second uh, Chronicles 25 notes that there's more to this story, which I think helps us understand verse 8. The more to the story is before he killed the Edomites, um, Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites um, that he brought the, he actually brought home the gods of the people of Seir. So odd thing that you defeat somebody and then you take their gods and bring them home with you. Um, so he bows down before them and he burns incense to them, 2 Chronicles 25, 14. He initially wanted to bring the northern Israelites with them into this battle, but he was told by a prophet not to because northern Israel was corrupt. So in doing this, uh, he correctly listens to the prophet, but then after this particular battle, he actually starts burning incense and making offerings to false gods. So just a reason that from verse 7 to point, verse 8, there's a shift there that I think the writer thinks we know um, and that we understand. Selah is the word the rock. Um, arguably, Selah, this city called rock, the rock in a valley in this part of the world, this valley of salt, uh, this is arguably a site that today we call Petra, which is kind of this uh, wonder of the ancient world that's, that's out there. And it, it would be a victory in enemy territory. I think that's what this means in the scriptures. They changed the name to Jokthiel, which means blessed of God. So they're giving some glory to God there. He, some of the elements he does well, but then you get to verse 8. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel, saying, come let us face one another in battle. The reason for this is when the, he sent home the northern Israelites from the Edomite battle, the northern Israelites, 2 Chronicles 25, 13, raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon and killed 3,000 in them and took much spoil. So even though they were paid by Amaziah, they were angry that they were sent home from battle. They weren't going to collect loot from the Edomites. So they went and took loot from the Israelites. So he gets home. He brings his false idols with him. He's not consulting Yahweh at this point, And he asks Joash to go into battle. Now the point here uh, is that he's picking a fight with other Israelites. So this isn't good. Verse 9, Joash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as a wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. This is a really obscure thing to respond with. We'll get into it. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that, and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, and you and Judah with you? The northern kingdom has no interest in fighting Judah. They've got Syrian battles. In fact, northern Israel has been fighting battles with Syria now for generations. They're hardened battle warriors. They have a significant army built up. They're ready to fight and they know how to do it because they've had to to defend themselves. It's been a lot of scrappiness that they've had to muster as they've left the protection of God. So the response here is fairly simple in light of that. He's you know, basically saying, so you beat up some weak Edomites. Don't get too cocky. Like, Don't get your head too bad. Don't think that you're suddenly a battle-hardened nation. You're not. Judah's had an, an incredible amount of peace and prosperity um, under, the, under, the, under God. They haven't had to defend themselves that much. So now they're starting to follow after false idols, and the first thing that comes is this conflict. 
this desire to be at war in battle. So this is a very diplomatic way to say, no, thank you. We're, you don't even know what you're talking about and you don't know what you're getting into. But Amaziah would not heed. He doesn't listen. And so this is the failing of Amaziah. Therefore, Joash, king of Israel, went out. So he and Amaziah, the king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel. So, you know, it's interesting. Joash is even smart enough to, like, if we're going to fight, we're going to fight on your land. Because wherever you fight a battle, that destroys crops. It destroys resources. Soldiers eat the food. So he's even smart enough to make sure to get out in front of where the battle's fought. Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. And then Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah. Doesn't kill him, just captures him. I think to show him, to teach him that you only exist because we've decided not to attack you. Like that Jerusalem's not worth that much. And in that, from a worldly sense, that's the image that a lot of people have about the place where God's name resides. They don't respect it. They don't regard it. So by taking Amaziah and, and what, making him watch, he's humbling him as best he can in a worldly sense. So this, uh, Amaziah, the king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and he went to Jerusalem. He broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gates of Ephraim to the corner gate. Now this isn't just some wooden stockade that they knack over. 400 cubits of solid rock. This is, has to be dismantled. They didn't have TNT to blow this up. So they actually take apart the wall in front of this, uh, in front of the Judah's king. And essentially, we can do whatever we want to you, is what they're saying. But they don't actually inhabit or take over Jerusalem. They leave it in the hands of Judah. Verse 14, he took all the gold and silver and all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and hostages, and he returned to Samaria. We don't even want your land. And so don't, don't get so excited about thinking that you're all that. Makes a demonstration of it all. By taking down the wall, that leaves Jerusalem wide open to attack. Um, so essentially, if you want to pick a fight again, next time we're coming for Jerusalem. And we're actually going to prepare that before we leave here today. So he withdraws. He takes some hostages with him. That's not a... Again, we have a king making big mistakes, and the people that get hurt are the people that trusted that king to protect them. And so he has a responsibility, but by follow, following after false idols, he actually fails in his responsibility to protect. 2 Kings 13, 12 through 13 is identical to the next two verses. Uh, so 15 says, now the rest of the acts of Joash, which he did, he, his might, how he fought with Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, and then Jeroboam his son reigned in his place. Again, we see an identical set of verses here, like uh, 13, 12, and 13. They're identical because the authors are putting together scripts from two different sources. And so that tagline is almost, uh, it's being used as a marker of an end of a script or an end of a record. Uh, Kings is a compilation book, and you just have to be aware of that. Um, it's not a mistake that it's in there twice, and the, the fact that it's, written the same way, shows the, the rigor and the discipline by which they wrote these scripts. Verse 17, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, the king of Israel. And now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? The fact that we don't have a lot more Amaziah stories seems to indicate that he kind of learned his lesson with this. 
So spiritually, he's still off track, but he doesn't continue to pick fights, at least from what we can see here. In verse 19, they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. He fled to Lachish, but they sent him to Lachish and killed him there. They being his own Judean countrymen. Uh, his following after false idols is not welcomed, and they push back against it. And he's lost a battle to the northern kingdom. So that, that it's clear that they're not welcoming his leadership anymore. Uh, then they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. This is important. The line of David now is going through this line. So it's fascinating where we've seen people uh, conspire and get rid of Israelite and Judean kings. In Judah, they never lose the line of David. Where in Israel, you know, we've seen whole families and whole dynasties get replaced by another dynasty. But in, in Judah, they don't do that. I think there's still a regard. They're still closer to God's law. Um, and we look at, so we look at uh, Azariah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah. That's not a small thing. After the, after the king rested with his fathers. The, the idea that um, Joash dies fairly close to his victory over Judah about a year later. And Chronicles gives some more detail on that. But God's blessing in this trip of Messiah is going to go through this line that we're talking about in these verses. And so the conspiracy forms, he runs off and he's killed. And amazingly, they keep his son his place. The, the name Azariah, we're going to see gets used just like Joash and Jehoash get kind of interchangeably used, like Jimmy and Jim. Uh, Azariah and Uzziah are going to get used interchangeably. Same person, same name. Um, one's just a, a different phrasing or a different spelling of it. But they keep the line, and then he builds Elath. This is a key event for Judah. Elath is the very southern tip of today's Israel, that little triangle that goes down. And the key to Elath as a port city is that it gives them access to India and Africa. And we really haven't seen that trade route be active since Solomon. So the fact that he builds Elath and they build a permanent port city in the south is actually pretty significant. And Uzziah is going to go down as one of the more successful kings. And he's, he actually uh, adds to the making Israel, again, a center of trade by building up that port. In verse 22, it says, he, uh, he built Elath. That's a, usually in the Hebrew, you don't see the pronoun. Uh, and the fact that it's here would be demonstrative. He'd be saying, in other words, Instead of fighting the northern kingdom, his dad should have actually taken care of Judah and stayed at home like he was told. And if he stayed at home, he would have probably built Elath. That was one of the things that needed to get done. So when we see in verse 22 that Uzziah, he builds Elath, the implication there is he builds it and his, it's his dad that should have done it, but eventually he did it. So there's a kind of that connotation there, at least in how the wording sets up. Jeroboam too shows up. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. So Jeroboam number two, if you want to keep track. Uh, he became king in Samaria, he reigned 41 years. That's a long reign. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who he had made Israel king. So as a good Samaritan, he's worshiping something called Yahweh. Uh, but not doing it the way Yahweh wanted to, which again is why the Samaritans get such a bad reputation with the Judeans. Uh, he's another mediocre king, not much of an epitaph 
You know, he was an evil king. He failed in all the same ways here. One more lukewarm warm king that doesn't serve the Lord the way they should. Just one more. Here they go. And we've seen a lot of those epitaphs. And it's kind of sad. Here's another person who had a chance to do glorious things for the kingdom, but he utterly serves himself and serves after these false gods, and he just fails to do anything of note. Verse 25, He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord of Israel. So that's an important line. It's not because of his skill and talent. It's because the Lord promised he would give northern Israel a break. And so Jeroboam 2 uh, historically becomes a fairly uh, significant, um, in worldly terms, successful king. But that's not because he did right in the eyes of the Lord. It's because the Lord made a promise uh, to give them a little bit more mercy, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So here's a mention of Jonah, which is why we have the book of Jonah, and it's been confirmed in another book. So Jonah, the son of Amittai, again, this reference is part of why we think that that servant that was with Elisha, that Jonah becomes the next head of the school, the, the sons of the prophets. And so in the northern kingdom, these are the people following the Lord, sticking to what the Bible says as best they can. And even as God's, the kings that God allows to be anointed fall away from him, these servants of the Lord keep popping up. And we all know the story of Jonah going to Nineveh. Uh, but prior to that story, it appears here that he was actually counseling kings and bringing them the words of God. So the author makes that clear and adds this bit of commentary in verse 26. Explaining why you could have a king that failed to serve the Lord have a long life and a prosperous reign. It's this reason, verse 26. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. Whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. God can show mercy even through kings that, that don't serve him well. Uh, and so that seems to be happening here. We have a weak spiritual nation, but he gives them a prosperity or a period where he saved them from the bitterness of oppression. Maybe a little prosperity, they'll come to appreciate the Lord. But that isn't what happens. They have a, a respite from Syria and Assyria. Um, we know technically why this is happening. Um, Syria is not attacking northern Israel, right, northern kingdom right now because they have another attacker that they're worried about. Historically, we know that at this period in time, the Assyrians are attacking the Syrians from the north. So all of their military suddenly takes off, like evaporates from battling with Israel and raiding Israel, and they're up defending themselves against this expansionist power called Assyria. And so we should be noting the rise of Assyria is that God's judgment is coming. It's growing. Uh, it is ultimately Assyrians that are going to take out the northern kingdom. So this period of peace doesn't mean that God's plan isn't still moving and in motion. This period of peace should actually be triggering them. Wait, why aren't the Syrians attacking us anymore? Why, do, why don't we have struggles and persecutions? Why don't we have battles right now? Why does you know, the, the enemy seem to be giving us a break. And that, you know, could be because God's blessing us. It could be that, that the enemy's drawing back, but, but actually for very different reasons than we think. In seasons of rest or in seasons of struggle, we give the glory to God all the same. And we obey God and we discipline ourselves to serve God as he's asked all the same. And there's a reason for that. And it's part of what we learn in the Old Testament. 
during this time, they're getting warnings, by the way. Don't, don't think that they're not getting warned and that God isn't sending them those warnings. We know that they have Jonah. And Jonah actually goes to warn, he goes to Nineveh. He goes to warn the, uh, warn the Assyrians. Um, but we also have Amos uh, rising up at this time. So uh, reading Amos's prophecies and, and books, uh, especially in Amos 2 and 8, um, they were supposed to get that period of prosperity and wealth in order to serve the poor. And instead, in Amos chapter 2 and chapter 8, they're using that wealth that they get, that little respite from Syria, and they're using it to oppress the poor just like Syria was doing. And so Amos talks about that. Then you get Hosea. He shows this political idea that their hearts are more interested in money than they are in God. Um, so Hosea comes and warns them and says, you're just not in the right place. And then you get the last verses. We'll wrap up. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did is might, how he made war, how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath, what had belonged to Judah. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and then Zechariah's son took his place. Another lukewarm epitaph, another generation of patience for God. Um, however, the end is coming. Uh, the patience doesn't go forever. Zechariah, we should note, is the fourth son to, from Jehu um, that was prophesied back in 2 Kings 10. Jehu was told that because of his loyalty early in his kingship, that his family would reign in northern Israel for four generations. Uh, so the fact that that's been prophesied and they know it and they've written down and they respect what the prophets say at this point, they shouldn't be oppressing with their wealth and their peace. They should be getting very wary that Zechariah is the last one and there's about to be turmoil in northern Israel. We'll pick up on that next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, bless us. Lord, even as we go through king after king after king that has basically the same story, Lord, may that bake into our hearts. May it create in us a sense of urgency that our lives can pass by. We can reign for 41 years in our own life and it amounts to nothing in your eyes. So Lord, let us give you one day where we're your servant in every way, shape, and form, and then another, and then another, and give you whatever life we have left so that at the end of our days, what's recorded in the book of life is the degree to which we serve you. So Lord, bless us in that and be with us in that. Help us to be obedient to what you've written, what you've called, and what you have for us each day. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.